So two weeks ago, I started a new sermon series on the book of Acts called A People for His Name. This phrase comes from the Apostle James at the Council of Jerusalem. And I want you to hear what the Apostle James said. He said, Simon Peter has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. This decision made so many centuries ago was the biggest decision made by the church in the first century. Gentiles, non-Jews, were going to be welcomed into the family of Abraham as Gentiles. So as we saw two weeks ago in Acts chapter 2, the, the Holy Spirit was poured out on the Jewish apostles. But eight chapters later, a non-Jewish man named Cornelius received the Holy Spirit, and he didn't become a Jew first. So the Jewish apostles had to reconsider everything they knew. They got together, they poured over the Old Testament, and guided by the Holy Spirit, they made this decision. Gentiles will be welcomed into the church without becoming Jews first. And after that decision is made, the Apostle Paul wastes no time at all getting on the road. I'm going to put a map up on the screen behind me. Uh, this is to demonstrate uh, what all Paul did as a missionary for Jesus. His very first missionary journey was mainly in Syria, the island of Cyprus, and then mainland Turkey. But the trip we're talking about today was Paul's second missionary journey. And if you start at the eastern coast of the Mediterranean Sea, that's where Israel is, Paul went all the way up the coast. He went across Turkey through his home Tarsus, all the way up to Troas and the northwest part of Turkey, across the sea to Philippi, and then all the way to Thessalonica in Greece. That man traveled a long way to get to the chapter we're talking about today. And over two weeks ago, I actually was in Thessalonica. I went on a pilgrimage with my brothers and my dad to Greece, and we got to go to a lot of ancient churches. I want to put one up on the screen for you. This church is called the Rotunda. It is the oldest Byzantine church on the planet. This, this building became a church in the late 300s, 17 centuries ago, and they still have worship services every year in that building. In 2022. And Christianity got to that city because Paul and a couple of his companions started walking. I mean, try to wrap your mind around that concept for a second. These trips were not easy. I got to sit in an air-conditioned plane, having meals delivered to me, and watch movies. Paul didn't get to do that. There were no planes, trains, and automobiles. He walked. He rode animals. He got aboard very precarious ships, and that's not to mention thieves along the road, inevitable persecution that Jesus himself promised would happen to him, or natural disasters. And don't even get started on how expensive all of these trips are. He had to raise a lot of money and spend that money just to risk his life doing what he did. So just consider how driven, how ambitious, how committed he was to the gospel. That makes no sense. Paul's mission makes no sense unless he thinks the message he's spreading is the most precious, most valuable thing that he wants everyone to hear and believe. Now, 
Someone in here this morning may not be a Christian. If you're watching online, you may not be a Christian. You may be interested in what we're talking about today. But, but what I want you to leave with is the gospel, the good news. I don't want anyone to reject this good news. I want you to hear it for what it actually is and not misunderstand it. So if you have a Bible, there's a lot of black Bibles under the pews, uh, these chairs in, in front of you. Um, you can reach down and grab one. We'll be in Acts chapter 17. If you don't have a physical Bible and you have your phone, you can get out the app and turn to Acts chapter 17 using that. We're going to go verse by verse to see what the gospel is, to learn its implications and its message today. And if you don't have any of that... You're not out of luck. We'll have the verses on the screen. So there's a million different ways to read these words. Okay? This is verse 1 from Acts chapter 17. Paul and his companions pass through Amphipolis and Apollonia, and they come to Thessalonica, where there is a Jewish synagogue. Now, this may catch you off guard at first. Why would Paul go there? It's because the gospel only makes sense in a Jewish context. Remember, Jesus is the long-awaited Jewish Messiah, the King of Israel. So it makes sense that Paul's custom was to go to the synagogue, because guess what? Everyone in the synagogue at the time would be waiting for the Messiah. He goes there first. And my question is, how did he convince people who lived all the way in Greece, all the way in Thessalonica, that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, who was miles and miles and miles away in Israel, how did he convince them that Jesus was the Messiah? Look at verse 2. Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Now, remember, he uses what we call the Old Testament. The New Testament was not written at the time. There was no New Testament. He used the Old Testament to prove Jesus was the Messiah. And how did he do that? If you look in verses 2 and 3, it says he reasoned with them from the scriptures, proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. Now, I wish we had a lot more information about exactly what Paul said here, but I think we can see some of the implications. I think that he went into these places, looked through all the passages of the Old Testament that talked about the Messiah and saw a consistent theme that the Messiah would suffer and the Messiah would be vindicated. The Messiah would suffer and the Messiah would be vindicated. And Paul says, guess what? I know a man all the way from Nazareth who suffered, died, and was raised from the dead. He fits the description of the Messiah. So if you look in verse 3, he says, This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is that Messiah. He suffered, he died, he rose from the dead, which means he is the long-awaited king that all the prophets talked about. And guess what? This is underlined and bold so that you remember it. There are Jews who are persuaded. Right in that moment, they, Paul didn't need the, the New Testament yet. He could, he could use the Old Testament. He could reason with them from the scriptures and convince them, yes, this Jesus is the Messiah. So they joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and prominent women. 
But here's the unfortunate fact. Whenever Paul preaches the gospel, wherever he goes, Jews and Gentiles, there's always a two-part response. Some accept and some reject. If you look at verse 5, we read, But other Jews were jealous. So they round up some bad characters from the marketplace, form a mob, and start a riot in the city. They rush to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, we don't know if Paul and Silas are well hidden in that home. We don't know if they just happen to be outside at the time. But they take what they can get, and the mob drags Jason and some of the other believers before the city officials. Now, I want to pause right here. We live in the 21st century in America, and very few Christians here can even fathom what this was like. We often read right by the character of Jason and don't give him two seconds thought, but think about this for a second. Just imagine you let Paul and Silas into your home. You're with your family. Out of the blue, you hear people banging on your front door. You have no idea what's going on. You open the door, and as soon as you open the door, people have grabbed you by your collar. They're dragging you through the streets of the city. We cannot even imagine what that is like. For Jason, we can't sanitize what's happening to him. This would be absolutely terrifying. But I want you to look at the reason they give, the reason the mob persecutes Jason. They bring him to the city officials, and they shout this. These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come to our neck of the woods. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. So Paul and Silas' crime, they are troublemakers all around the world. And Jason's crime is welcoming those troublemakers. Now, if you read, if you have another translation with you, either on your Bible app or uh, the Bible in front of you, sometimes uh, that verse is translated, they are turning the world upside down. Another translation is, they are undermining the civilized world. And I love those translations because they get to the heart of the controversy. The mob is saying, look, we have our worlds. We have our culture. We have our status quo. We have our set of beliefs that we know in the Roman Empire, and they are a threat to that status quo, that culture, that world, because of their message, because they claim that a man in Israel died and did not stay dead. Now, 20 centuries later, my question is, okay, why in the world is that considered a threat? Why wouldn't the crowds just shrug and say, well, it's not true. It's, it's a lie. That's not even possible for someone to rise from the dead. Or just tolerate it. Who, who cares if these Neanderthals, Paul and Silas, believe in myths and stories? They can believe whatever they want to believe. They're not going to overcome the Roman Empire. Here's why their message is considered a threat. I want you to focus on verse 17. The mob says, they, that is Paul and Silas and Jason and all these Christians, they are defying Caesar's decrees because they're saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. Okay, the problem the mob has with Paul and Silas and Jason and all the Christians is not that they're saying Jesus died and rose again. They believe that this man who died and rose is now in charge. 
They have followers, he has followers who call him king, that he rules the world. And that means he's competing with Caesar, isn't he? And there's no way Caesar is going to allow for any competition. Now, we don't actually know if the mob believed in anything they're, they're saying. They could have just been stirred up uh, by the Jews. But I think this is the reason why the message works. They yell this at the city officials, the people who work for Caesar. And the last thing those officials want is for a bunch of Christians in Thessalonica to be submissive to another king, one called Jesus. So these city officials, they think we need to put this down immediately. This, is, this could even be perceived as competition with Caesar, this Jesus of Nazareth. And so if you look in verse 8, it reads, When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. They made Jason and the others postpone and let them go. Okay, this may seem like a kind of tame ending, right? Jason didn't die, he isn't in prison for life, but don't underestimate the message that they're sending Jason and all the Christians. Look, if you start welcoming Paul and Silas and these other characters, you're going to be dragged out of your home. You might be put in front of a court, and next time we can't promise what will happen. So y'all better not cause any more problems. Jason and all the other Christians know that there is a threat hanging over them as long as they live in the city. If you welcome Christians, if you act like Christians, if you say that Jesus is another king in town, something worse may happen next time. Okay, this series for this summer is called A People for His Name. Okay, we're talking about what it means to be the church and the gospel that we share with others. And if there's one truth I want you to take with you as you leave is this. The church and the gospel always make some kind of trouble. Wherever the church goes, wherever the gospel goes, we always make some kind of trouble. And here's why. Jesus calls for ultimate allegiance to him and his gospel. So if Caesar or any other earthly power demands us to disobey Christ, we are obligated to say no to the politician and yes to Jesus. So in that sense, Christians very much disturb the hearts and minds of earthly rulers. We are, in that sense, troublemakers. Because we cannot accept the status quo if it goes against the gospel. In the first century and many centuries to follow, Christians have always been called insufficiently loyal to the state. Because Christians wouldn't treat Caesar as the only king. They wouldn't participate in worshiping the emperor by burning incense to his statues. They wouldn't participate in pagan religious ceremonies. They were not considered good Roman citizens. Because Jesus calls for ultimate allegiance. This is why Martin Luther King Jr. and his fellow civil rights activists ended up in jail a lot like Paul. Because they were asked to submit to unjust laws that discriminated against black Americans based upon the color of their skin. And they said, no thank you. They had a higher allegiance to Christ and his gospel. They knew that every earthly politician has their authority on loan. 
And every earthly power or ruler is obliged to steward that authority well. And if they abuse it, Christians at the end of the day must obey God rather than man. And here's the thing, that causes trouble to any society who want Christians to get in line and submit. It causes trouble with Jews in this chapter, and it also causes trouble with Gentiles. But it is good trouble. It's trouble that comes from being faithful to Jesus. The irony of this story is that when the, what the mob worried about actually came true, you know, you can hear it in their concern. The world is being turned upside down. The civilized world is being challenged by Paul and Silas. And when I went to Thessalonica, there was a church on every corner. So things have changed. Paul and Silas did turn the world upside down. That's the most amazing thing about their concern. The church and the gospel have actually outlasted Caesar and his world. This is the strength of Christ's church. Paul and Silas are run out of the city. Jason is dragged through the streets. And the magistrates are all worried sick because these Christians are now in their town. And the fact is that Caesar came and went. The Roman Empire is no more, but the church still worships in Thessalonica. I've been to the churches in the city. They're doing just fine. <laughs> to end today, I want to talk about Paul's two letters to the churches to churches in Thessalonica. They're actually in our New Testament. So we not only hear from the book of Acts about his trip to Thessalonica, the story of him going there, we actually have two letters that he sent to the church. And I just want to read these verses because they are so good. 1 Thessalonians starts off in chapter 1, verses 4. You can look up on the screen. It says, For we know, brothers and sisters loved by God, that he has chosen you. Our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. I want you to listen to these next verses. Paul says, You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. I know we don't normally think about this, but think about Jason in the church in Thessalonica hearing that letter read out loud. He would say, oh yeah, I know about severe suffering. And Paul is encouraging him and all those who suffered there. He says, you've welcomed the message even in the midst of severe suffering. But I want to end with this, these last two verses, verses 7 and 8. Paul says, and so you became a model to all of the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you. Not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. This is amazing. Pause for a second and consider this fact. 2,000 years ago, Paul wrote a letter. And in that letter, he wrote, the Lord's message has rung out from you. And today, in Texas, in 2022, we are reading this letter. Can you believe that? He says the Lord's message is ringing out from you. All the way from Achaia to Austin, Texas. Not just all over the world, but for 2,000 years. Their faith in God has become known everywhere. This is what the gospel is all about. It's about Jesus suffering 
dying, and rising from the dead. And wherever we go, Christians say that message, and we cause some trouble because of it. Because our ultimate allegiance has to be in Jesus. And we will face suffering for that message. But ultimately, through our lives, through our words and deeds, that message rings out to the whole world. Let's pray. Father, we pray that in our lives, in our words, in our actions, in our relationships, the Lord's message would ring out from us. We pray that we would continue to come back to the gospel. The simple, summarized version that Jesus suffered, died, was buried, but rose from the dead, and now he is in charge. Any earthly power ultimately is underneath the power and authority of Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for his enduring power and authority. We know that earthly rulers see him as a threat, see him as competition. And yet he has turned the civilized world upside down. Paul and Silas were run out of Thessalonica, and yet today it's full of churches. Sometimes, Father, you don't ask us to see success in this life. You just ask us to be faithful. And, Father, we ask that you empower us to be faithful to Christ. We pray this prayer in the name of Jesus. Amen.